okay? How are you? What time does the 7 o'clock meeting start? 7 o'clock. So thank you, Sean. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to Position Neutrality. Welcome to New Freedom. Um, I'm glad we got a hoot out of that. Is everybody a little sleepy tonight? Yeah, I, cold weather would do that to you. We open every meeting of Position to Neutrality with a prayer, and Chaplain Lee's in the house. Come on and stand to your feet all over the room. All right, let us pray. Father, we thank you again today for another day that you have blessed us to see. As of yesterday, today was not promised, but you saw fit for us to step into it. So we thank you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to come together in unity. And God, we just ask you and invite you in to use your manservant to speak. The words that you would have him to speak to those of us that are here tonight, because we know it's a direct, a direct hit from heaven. We know, God, that you are already in charge of all things, knowing all things, and ready to move on all things. So we thank you in advance for the lives of those that are on their way, those that are here, and we give you the praise in advance for all that you're about to do. We thank you, we praise you, we glorify you, magnify you, and give you all the honor in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Let everyone say amen. amen. Thank you, Chap. Oh, we got to get more lively than this, guys. Yeah, you got to make, make noise like there was 300 of you in here. So anyone in here for the first time tonight? A few of you, good. First of all, welcome. Second, let us warn you in advance, you'll be able to perceive us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. And the primary reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a different experience here. So what we do here is we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week, directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery Why? The process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances, yeah? So, what we try and do here is show you how to find your experience in the book, and the way I do that is I show you how I find my experience in the book and encourage you to have yours. Does that make sense? And I'll show you why we do it just exactly that way. In one second, if you have a book, you want to go to the forward to the first edition. We're in a step one night, so we're going to start. And it's forward to the first edition. They start out with the big W, we, of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So if you internalize what they said, who are the authors of this book? The first 100. So this is their testimony and our job if we want what they said they had is to try and align our experience with theirs. Does that make sense? Notice how they said to show other alcoholics precisely how we recovered 
is the main purpose of the book. So remember what I told you what I was going to try and do? I'm going to try and do for you what someone did for me. I'm going to show you how to read this book and find your experience in it. And then it won't be reading a book about other people. It'll make your story come alive. Does that make sense? Okay. And if it doesn't do that, then it's meaningless. It's just another book. But if you can find yourself in it and then do what it says, then you will experience that new freedom, that new happiness. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, then it says, for them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. So if tonight you experience this experience a little different and you are compelled to go more, then consider that your authentication to move forward. Does that make sense? Because what this, this for, meeting in this format, I've been doing this for lots of years, and one of the things I've noticed is people either come once and they're appalled and they leave and never to be seen again, or, or they come and just start saturating in it, because that's what we do here, we saturate in it. All right, so we think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we're sure our, that our way of living has its advantages for all. So I'm going to jump from there to the doctor's opinion. Um, I actually want to go to the expanded text of the doctor's opinion as recorded on XXVII, Roman numeral 27. Because I'm going to jump ahead to what the doctor opined once the authors asked him to expand on his opinion earlier before they had the profound experience that they detail in the book. Does that make sense? So I'm at the bottom of that page. It says, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. Any of you ever wonder why when you knew it wasn't good for you to overindulge, you continually overindulged, even when you had resolutions to yourself not to overindulge? Any of you set tricks for yourself? I'll only spend so much. I'll only stay so long. Okay. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So what are they talking about? Back then they didn't have the profound abundance of detox facilities. They were very rare. But how many of you have made your way to a detox facility? Okay. So they, some, they found they sometimes had to detox us before they could work with what was going on in our mind. Any of you have that experience? Okay. And then it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. How many of you have had trouble with the idea of your addictive disorder as an allergy? Like it didn't make sense to you because of your understanding of allergy, yes? How many of you have heard the jokes in our fellowship? Oh, I drink and I break out in handcuffs. 
So we've all heard it, and we're all tired of hearing it. It's just people trying to be entertaining. But the point is, this is a profound truth. If I am this addict of the hopeless variety, addicted to alcohol, I have an abnormal reaction to the chemical alcohol when I put it in my body. How many of you are drinkers? A few of you. Good. That's good. How many of you have found that when you drink alcohol, it energizes you? It's a sedative. That would be a, a doctor seeing you energized by a sedative would think, oh, that's odd. That may be the manifestation of an allergy because he's speaking to you in clinical language. Does that make sense? Where's my, where's my heroin addicts, opiate addicts? Did you find that stuff got you up dancing? It, it's a powerful sedative. Where's my meth addicts? Stuff calmed you down, didn't it? Need I say more? So if you have those abnormal reactions, and don't, you know, if that's not your thing, I've known meth addicts that weren't meth addicts because they got calmed down. They were meth addicts because they were food addicts and they were trying to stop the food addiction. But you gotta ask another question. But we gotta find ourselves in it and it, we can't be making jokes about it. Somebody that actually understands what this means so that you can see if, well, maybe I should read further, right? Okay. So the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class. Which class? The chronic alcoholic. What does it mean that it's limited to this class? Yeah, it's, it just, it only happens to that chronic alcoholic. No matter how many times I try and drink my way through my alcoholism, I'm gonna, any of you ever try and drink your way past it? This is bad news. <laughs> And it never occurs in the average temperate drinker. How many in a never? never. Zero. Not even one. Seems rather limiting, doesn't it? So they, did, they didn't tell you you're an alcoholic. What they said is that phenomenon of craving, and you're the only one's going to know, that, that phenomenon only occurs with chronic alcoholics, and it never occurs with a temperate drinker. And later in the book, they're going to talk to you about hard drinkers and temperate drinkers, and real alcoholics, right? So what they're not telling you is that you're alcoholic because that's none of their business. What they are telling you is they have this reaction, they're alcoholics, and if you're having it, you're definitely not temperate. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay. So it goes on to tell us, uh, tell us that... that um, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. How many of you have had that happen? How many of you realized that alcohol was getting to be a bit of a problem and you solved it with a little methamphetamine solution? So any form at all. Not saying chemically any form. Anytime I block my consciousness, I'm at grave risk to return to the freedom I found in those chemicals, even though I look enslaved by them. Does that make sense? 
Okay. So it says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you had people beg you to stop? If you loved me, you'd stop. And you loved them. And you couldn't stop. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. So what I want to explain to you is I hear people talk about this and they think it's a shock and awe campaign. I want to tell you how bad it was for me and want to tell me all about the circumstances. That was never it. Depth and weight means I need to speak to your soul. I need to tell you what I was like, not what it was like. I have no idea what it was like because it would have been intolerable. But what I was like was a dead man walking. I had no reason to live, but not enough courage to take myself out. So I did it one installment at a time every day. And I didn't believe it was ever going to change, and I didn't know when it was going to end, but I hoped I could block my consciousness just enough to get to the end. Some of you are feeling me. That's what we mean by depth and weight. Okay. All right. So in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their life. That's the doctor's opinion. So then I'm going to run down to the bottom of the page. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. How many of you knew it was going to be a great harm for you to do something, but you could bring to consciousness the ease and comfort that would come if you did do it. And then pretty soon you thought, what would be the harm? Or maybe you didn't think about it at all. Okay. Just to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So do yourself a favor. Whatever it is that you did, opiates, methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, whatever your jam is, give yourself permission to feel that ease and comfort. Breathe it in. I'm feeling some of you do it. How many of you are sober here tonight? Some of you a long time, right? Sitting here right now, stone cold sober, you can still bring that sense of ease and comfort to consciousness. And what they say is, if I don't get relief from that, I'm going to be restless, irritable, and discontented unless I can regain it. So I, in my being, I am a seeker of ease and comfort. So if I keep searching for it out there, then the restlessness, irritability, and discontent is going to elevate to the point I need to anesthetize. Does that make sense? That's, that's the doctor's opinion based on their experience. If, it relate, if it's making sense to you, then we need to read further, right? Okay, so um, it says, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. How many of you have had that happen? Not to use again, not to drink again. Oops, here I go. How many of you took it to ridiculous places? Full degradation. Like that place you were never going to go, just cruised right past that. 
this is my crowd. <laughs> How many times? What the authors say is this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So what I'm going to do now, because that's all I wanted us to do on, on that, I want to go to Bill's story tonight, because we seem to respond better to stories than we do therapeutic approaches. And I don't know why that is, but that's why we base this whole reentry center on a peer model is you guys like hearing from people who've been where you've been and are going another way where you didn't dare to hope you could go. And when you see those people who have been where you've been or worse and they're going where you didn't think you could ever go, all of a sudden you feel empowered. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. And that's the model. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's Bill. I'm going to start on page five. He said, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. How many of you can remember when your addiction went from I want to do it to I have to do it? It's a very definite crossing over, isn't it? Most people don't get that about us. Because we don't tell them that's where we're at. We, we don't even want to believe it ourselves, do we? So he's going to describe what it looked like for him. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, often three, got to be routine. Any of you drinkers? you guys start consuming amounts that you once thought impossible? <laughs> there you go. Attaboy. When you, got, when you got one handle in your hand and one in the freezer for a backup, you've arrived. <laughs> Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly and I began to waken very early in the morning shaking violently. Can you relate to him? doesn't matter what it is you're doing, that's generally what would happen. If you were doing methamphetamines and cocaine, you, you didn't really so much awaken as perk up. <laughs> a tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. He's intentional with his words. Do you remember when you had to get enough in you just to go do the very simple things just to get some more for your backup for later? Like, it's a full-time job to stay that screwed up, right? It's like, what do you mean I couldn't come to work? Why would I go to work? This is my job. <laughs> Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. I want to point that out to you because often when you're new in recovery, you don't believe that you've got a mental illness. You think you have a problem of choice. You can't make a choice with an unsound mind. So we got to analyze how we've been thinking and see if we saw it in somebody else if we would find it sound thinking, right? So he has to have a half a dozen bottles of ale in order to get any sustenance. He's drinking and waking up shaking violently. He's going through all this stuff. He's run up tabs everywhere. But I got this shit. <laughs> you relate to him? All evidence suggests I do not have it. <laughs> right? Okay. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. How many of you had somebody watching you? And you're like, oh, he's got this. <laughs> and we're thinking to ourselves, I 
hope she's not easily disappointed. <laughs> right? Or he, whoever, whatever flavor you're working on, it don't matter to me. Okay, gradually things got worse. Sean finds that funny. So he's going to describe, Sean's laughing because he's read the book, but look at how he describes gradually. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. How many of you guys didn't pay the rent for a while? It takes a few months before they come and take it and sell it at the sheriff's sale. Maybe even a year or more. Bill says gradually. Like when did this happen? <laughs> my mother-in-law died, my wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising, promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point in 1932 and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. So he's looking at the progressiveness of his illness. He's still got the business mind that had raised him up to where he, he was making a good income. So he still, still had it. The old thinker still works. And he's got a plan to make a whole bunch of money, share prodigiously. That's an intentional word. We're going to make a shit ton. That's what that means. And then what he did is he went out on a prodigious bender instead. And then he just sort of drank through his opportunity. Some of you felt that. Some of you really went with him. Who did? Yeah. Because that's the whole idea. Pay attention to what's going on in your being because that's the power we're going to talk to you about in here. When you relate to that, now we're touching you where we need to touch you so that we can move you where we need to move you. Does it make sense? Okay, so it says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw that I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. How many of you really meant it? How many of you very shortly after that could show no outward evidence that you really meant it? So we understand now that this is not rational behavior. This is, this is a head full of knowledge of what's going on and no ability to act outwardly as if I understood the severity of my condition. See what he's describing for us? How many of you lived through that? See, because it's easier to see it outside. How many of you, no matter how bad you got, maintained that friend who was just a little worse than you? At least I ain't that bad yet. They get harder to find after a while. You take the south part. But the reality is that's how we see, isn't it? I can clearly see their problem. They're just drinking that cheap stuff. <laughs> anyway. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. How many of you went with him there? He really meant it. He really meant it. And then, so now he's going to talk about what that disappointment, that self-disappointment, that self-loathing feels like. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? 
Now, he's desperately seeking. How many of you were there? Even if you didn't share it that way, just where in the hell did that go? I simply didn't know. I hadn't, it hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? How many of you got to that point with drinking or drugs and you just knew your housing was dependent on it, your family was dependent on it, your employment, your freedom maybe was dependent on it? And yet, oh well. I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near, near being just that. So Bill's telling you what he means when we talk about insanity of alcoholism is an appalling lack of perspective. And I call that to your attention because over the years, people have adopted the little phrase, doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And because we hear it so often, we think that's what they're talking about. But how many of you, like me, did the same thing with no expectation of a different result? Yeah, this is gonna suck, watch. Yeah? So then, if we change or alter their testimony, we, we can harm somebody. So we want to make sure we're using the right words for this level of insanity. Because we are the people with the disease no one believes they have, except the people watching them. Okay. All right, so then it says, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. What's he mean by that? Exactly right, Lance. How many of you went in and got your 24-hour chip and maybe stopped shaking or started sleeping within two or three days and by the end of a week you're just, can't wait to get that 30-day thing or, I don't know, they give a chip for every day you breathe nowadays, I don't <laughs> but, but it, there was that, once upon a time that wasn't that way, you actually had to get a little distance between you and the but um, so when I start thinking that I got this, not thinking about the fact that I never had this, what ends up happening is I'm confusing my experience of grace with the illusion of control. Does that make sense? Did that land? So it's it can it's easily forgivable because I'm not accustomed to the experience of grace. I did it every day, no matter what. And then I didn't. And I got this little window to get busy. And then I don't get busy. I fail to enlarge my spiritual life. And then one day, I'm back restless, irritable, and discontent. Yeah? Okay. So it says, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Now see how he's telling the story? He still thinks his getting drunk after he takes a drink is a choice. Later he's gonna tell you, once you take a drink, ain't no choice, it's beyond your mental control. So the reality of the situation is the insanity didn't happen after you took the drink, that's just the crazy stuff that happens to a guy like me once I take a drink. The insanity happened knowing all that I know about me and my history, I took the drink anyway. So I'm going to need defense against the first drink, not the third. 
Because by the time I get to the third, I'm fortified. I don't need no more defense. Does that make sense? A lot of people are misled about that. Why do I want to enlarge my spiritual life? Because I need defense against the first drug. The first drug. The first whatever. Okay. So then he talks about the experience of knowing all that and doing it anyway. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. How many of you went out again after some clean time? Can you bring to consciousness that remorse, horror, and hopelessness he's talking about? If you'll allow yourself to feel it, it's, it's worthwhile because we're having the experience of powerlessness and unmanageability. We're not talking theories. We're talking experiences. So it says the courage to do battle was not there. Did you ever get there? Where you felt so bad in your self-loathing that you just didn't, I'm not even going to fight it anymore. The heck with it. If I don't try again, I can't fail again. Have you been there? says, my brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. If you're drinkers, you really know what he's talking about because the minute you take the drink, the anxiety comes up and we think the drink's going to fix the anxiety. But it's producing the anxiety because we have an ab abnormal effect. <laughs> Doc, I have to drink. I'm so anxious. Oh, here, you just have an Ativan deficiency. Um, <laughs> I hardly dared cross the street lest I would collapse and be run down by an early morning truck for it was scarcely daylight. An all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. Then he said, that was a hard thought. Have you ever had a hard thought? Go with him on that journey. It's so important that we understand when we talk about an admission of powerlessness and unmanageability, we're not talking about theories. I'm talking about something I desperately don't want to happen. It's going to happen. I'm fully aware of it, and I don't want it to, but here we go. Yeah? My friend Brad, for you guys that are students of that other book, he said, when you want to talk about powerlessness, just answer yourself this question, how much power did Lazarus have to come out of that grave? Some of you felt that. None until he gained access to, to a command, right? Okay. Which is why I'm going to want to enlarge my spiritual life. Okay. All right, so... Um, no, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles in oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. How many of you have been in that cycle for it just seemed like forever? And then one day you were delivered from it. How many of you have had to watch somebody else in that cycle and you got frustrated with them and scared for them, really, but you took it out as anger and tortured yourself in them? So this, you won't be as useful. So we've got we've to understand what we're seeing. And we understand that that brokenness is essential. And we've got to talk to them as God sees them, not as they see themselves, because they already got enough condemnation going on. Does that make sense? Okay. So sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Any of you do that? 
<laughs> like two of you. The rest of you, I know you're like, who'd you steal from then? <laughs> Where's my 12 steppers? How many of you had the seventh tradition money? <laughs> Wayne and I. <laughs> okay. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. And then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Any of you get to where you were medically in need of... How many of you found that the sedative was comforting? How many of you thought maybe a little more sedative would help you manage better next time? <laughs> so it says the next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. So see, there's nothing new under the sun. They're, they're just talking about what they did and we, we all think we've done something new. Well, we just recycled it and made it a little more potent and a little cheaper perhaps. But it's, it, it, you know what it all costs? Every fucking thing because my addiction's to more. So it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever I take, what I need is more. And what I'm willing to give for it is everything. Anyone else? Okay. So it says, people feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking. I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So Bill meets Dr. Silkworth, who we read from in the beginning, and starts to undergo his first treatment, yeah? So it says, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. How many of you came to recovery and you heard the stories in the rooms and you thought, I'm sure glad I heard that stuff. I'm not that bad yet. I'm just going to not pick up no matter what. Look, it's a common thing. Bill, there wasn't a fellowship to go to at that time, but Bill was relieved. The doctor said, you know, my will was weakened, but now that I have that knowledge, I will fortify my will. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone understand that? Because yeah. we've all thought that too, probably, right? So then it says, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. That's kind of weird terminology for 2024. What's he mean by the goose hung high? <laughs> Sean brought it right home, right? Things are good. I'm sober. Wife's reasonably happy to see me. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. 
Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So how many of you had some self-knowledge? How many of you found that was good as far as it went? Okay. So he says, but it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. So he's been to one treatment. Now he's drinking again. He's on his way to his next treatment. How many of you have been to more than one treatment? How many of you felt a little diminished going back to fellowship? Okay, well, I can't help you with that, but I will tell you that the author of this book went through a few of them. And you can get it on the first take, but most didn't. Most of them had to, you know, once we get introduced to something, then we got to go test drive it a little. So it says, uh, the curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. So what's he describing? How many of you had some clean time, and when you went off, you didn't go off a little, like a ski jump? That's what they're talking about. So after a time, I returned to the hospital. So now we're back for treatment too. Yeah? That he documents. How about, we don't know what else was. So this, this was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. How many of you had a doctor tell you or your loved ones, if you didn't stop, you're going to die? How many of you were unimpressed with that news? I'm going to die, I know. Can you tell me when? That would be an interesting little piece of information. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm talking about the mindset, right? Okay. So they did not need to tell me. I knew. So he's talking to what we knew, too. And almost welcomed the idea. So he just said the same thing in a little different way than I just said it to you. Yes? So it was a devastating blow to my pride. How many of you, when you finally started to realize that you probably were not going to get out of this nonsense? How many of you can still think about how that felt? I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. Follow him on this thought. No word can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. It's hard to describe how alone and they talk about it where pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. Pitiful meaning to evoke contempt from self or others. Incomparable meaning impossible to know. Right? Demoralization means without fight. Does that make sense? So that's what they're describing. How many of you have had that experience? So he describes it this way, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. Think about that. What happens if quicksand's stretching around you in all directions? No matter how hard you struggle, you go deeper into the muck. So I always cringe when people in fellowship say, you got this. 
keep up the fight. No, no, lay down the fight. Quicksand is around you in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. So he has now admitted there is a power greater than him. You know why step two doesn't say came to believe that a power could restore us? Because it's obvious I already believe in a power greater than me. I've been chasing it all around the dumpsters and byways. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. So we're going to get to yet another round of treatment. The cycle. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I'd have to be shut up somewhere, would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So the fourth dimension of existence, people have opined about. He didn't really write that much about it, but if you'll think about it in the timing of things, what, what were the dimensions known to man at that time? Yeah, so we, we, this fourth dimension is beyond time and space. Yes? So if you're beyond time, where are you? You're in the now. Especially if you're beyond time and space. Where can you be but right here? If you, so he got catapulted to an aware living situation. Does that make sense? Fully present in his own role. Some of you are feeling that. Who's feeling that? I'm feeling people feel that. Okay, good. And he talks about it, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So he has described for you the progressiveness of his illness, and now he's starting to introduce you to the progressiveness of his recovered state, his consciousness, his awakening. Does that make sense? Okay. So it says, near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work, and I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Where's my drinkers? Were you hiders? How many of you hid your full bottles, but they weren't worth a shit at hiding your empties. <laughs> Trying to carry your garbage out in the middle of the night because they clank and you don't want to put it. <laughs> Meth addicts don't laugh. I haven't put enough of you in detox. We have to cut the seams in your underwear and everything to get all the meth out. <laughs> My musing was interrupted by the telephone, the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. Bill wrote that in italics because he wanted to call your attention to the miracle. This is the one guy that's worse than Bill. As bad as he got, that's that guy that's worse than him. So he's calling him and that usually means we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get hammered. Boy, is Lois going to be disappointed when she gets home. <laughs> so 
it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. So he really wants you to get how impossible it is for what he's hearing. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. This guy must have busted out. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. Any of you ever had somebody that you knew was new to recovery, and then you got around them, and you kind of took lightly their effort to be in recovered state, and you went ahead and either drank around them or encouraged them? To, a lot of us make that mistake, and it, and it you know, that's why we're going to serve for the rest of our lives, because we, we're a little... Yeah, cavalier about people's condition. So there was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So conjure in your mind what he's trying to tell you. What is an oasis? Yeah, it could be either one. But, but even though... Nine times out of ten, it's probably a mirage. I'm going to believe for the one in ten every time. Anyone else? This is going to be my lucky day. Okay. So he's just trying to help us understand the way we think and maybe understand that there's a path out. Yes? So it says, the door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. So now this is Bill talking about his drinking friend. Now, admit, especially you men, don't you find that an odd description of your drinking buddy? Fresh-skinned and glowing. I would probably not use those words. There was something about his eyes. So he's trying to call our attention how many of you have met that person that you knew, yet you knew that you knew they could never be well, and then one day you met them well and they were barely recognizable? That's the, that's the description they're giving you. I felt some of you feeling that, so I know some of you know what I'm talking about. So, so he was inexplicably different, and so he immediately says, what had happened? How, how could that guy... See, this is his first exposure to a miracle. He'd heard people talk about him. He still hadn't even identified it yet, but it was so different, it was causing him to go introspective. Does that make sense? So I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed, but curious. I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Have you ever been disappointed, but curious? Okay, you're going to be a buzzkill. Huh, more for me. Right? So he has to ask, come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. I felt, I felt some of you feel that, too. Doesn't matter what your religious belief is, does it? I'm sitting there drunk and drinking, and I'm about to twist off, and I asked this cat, who was always worse than me, what up? And he says, I've got religion. And the fun meter just went, <laughs> oh boy, this is going to suck, right? We are about to get a sermon. 
So understand, that's what he thought. And now here's the experience. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So that was his expectation. I can drink his drone away. Watch me. Here's the problem. He did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. We've shied away from telling people what these guys knew we had to tell them. We do have a simple religious idea. I don't know why there's such an argument around that. What we are telling you, this simple idea, is the power to live is in you. Although not of you. And we have a practical program of action that will prove that fact to you, through you, if you'll just do what is suggested. And there's no reason for him not to believe it because he was just matter of fact saying this is what happened for me. I had nothing to do with it. Bill, you know they would never let me out or you know what a crazy crackpot I am. So, said he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. The authors of this book use the words they mean and they mean the words they say. They're very intentional. They checked it amongst a hundred of them probably a fewer than 100, but they use the number, but whatever, a bunch of them reading a thesaurus and a dictionary. So he didn't come to share a fellowship. He didn't come to share advice. He came to share that experience, that recovered state with him as evidence that this power that's now animating him, it was gonna work for Bill. Does that make sense? So it said, said, I was shocked but interested. Have you ever been shocked but interested? What's the catch? What do you get out of it? We're skeptics, right? No matter how desperate we are. It says, certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. He's talking about now having had this profound experience with Ebby, and Ebby's still talking to him and telling him, sharing more and more of his story, and he's starting to reflect on his experiences. And he's thinking about his grandfather, who he apparently had a great deal of respect for, and he was amazed at his faith that he would even tell the religious people, you can't tell me how to worship my God. Even to the point of death, he was that certain of who he was and whose he was. And so he said that made him swallow hard. How many of you have had some profound truth hit you, and all of a sudden you're like, 
pushing back some emotion. So they're talking about a movement within him, aren't they? And some of you had it because I felt you have it. Okay. So then he's going to talk about some more of that. He said that wartime day in the old, old, old Winchester Cathedral came back again. So if you read it in the earlier part of his story, he talked about going to war. He was scared. He went into the churchyard. He saw a gravestone of a soldier who had survived war and then drank himself to death. So that's coming back to him because he's an old soldier who survived war. Now he's drinking himself to death. Starting to make sense? Okay, he says, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? So he's starting to ask himself, let me go back from what I've said I am, because he was known to be and declaratively an atheist. And he goes, okay, well, I'm, maybe I'm not really an atheist. I just, I don't believe that this power you talk about can be proven. Any of you been where Bill is? Most of us have been where Bill is. So then he said, said, I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. It wasn't until the point of desperation that he considered further. Any of you ever get desperate and considered further your own limiting beliefs? Whatever they were. So I said, with ministers in the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. Any of you relate to that? The minute someone goes just because of your experiences of religious folks and their teachings, that perhaps it just, no more? Okay. I'm going to jump to the middle of that next page just for brevity. But my friend sat before me and he made the point blank doc declaration that God had done for him what he could not do. Oh yeah, you guys, if you've never been here before, when I say God, you say, because what we're talking about is power to live from within you. And we don't want you to get confused because of a bad religious experience. But we also don't want you to buy into the nonsense of light bulbs and doorknobs. There's precise instructions in this book. How do we find them? Sometimes we have to search fearlessly. Where do we find them? Deep down inside. Where's the solution found? Deep down inside. Where's the problem centered? In the mind. So the problem nor the solution are external. I've got to start looking inward. Yes? Okay. So it says, said, said he made the point like declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. So all he's doing, he's armed with the facts about himself and he's bearing witness, which is all we're supposed to do. I don't get any points for signing you up. It's my own redemption I seek. And if you get well, you'll seek the same redeemer I got. Because like I said, I get no points because I got no power. So his human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Then he had in effect been raised from the dead. Suddenly taken from scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. How many of you can relate to that description. Like total degradation, ain't nothing going good, not even a desire hardly creeping up to do better, and then all of a sudden, 
No more scrap, get to walking. Anyone know what he's talking about? That's what it is to be recovered. There's arguments over the years in the fellowships that's recovering. No, if they'd have meant recovering, they'd have said that. They said recovered. But you'll remember back then there was no disease called alcoholism or addiction. So they were using a mining term, not a medical term, and they were talking about to recover a mineral or some, sometimes use a recovery method from a scrap heap and they'll extract something infinitely valuable. How many of you have, when you got properly armed with the facts about yourself, thought some of the lowest parts of your life were infinitely valuable to help others avert suffering? Some of you are feeling that. That that, that you're feeling, that's happening in you. That's not coming from here. We're just sharing depth and weight in here. We're talking about the tangible sensory power that is God. Does that make sense? Okay. So then he says, had this power originated in him? He's asking the question. And he's thinking logically now, obviously it did not. There's no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. So Bill's drunk and drinking. Ebby is stone cold sober watching him drink, bearing witness, and he realizes he's gained access to something I desperately need. I have to at least be willing to pursue it. Does that make sense? So it says that floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. So now he knows what he saw when he came to the door. He now has done enough introspection to know he is indeed seeing the miracle being displayed for him because that miracle is the shadow of the miracle he's walking into. Does that make sense? Because from this point, he's going to treatment one more time. Remember, he told you that was the beginning of his last debauch. But now someone's modeled for him the possibility of getting out of impossibility. So I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasp a new soil. I want to jump um, down to the bottom of that page. Um, second to last paragraph, it said he, he went through some more thinking, but then he says, thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last, I saw, I felt, and then I believed. I want to talk to the people that still have religious prejudice and still come to our fellowships and they don't understand. We're not talking religion here. We're not asking you to come to believe in something you can't see and feel before you believe, which we're going to get into lengths about next week. But always a tangible demonstration of power. Any of you that felt what I'm talking to you about, not heard what I'm talking about, felt what I'm talking about, you've already encountered this power we're talking about. Does that make sense? So then it says, it says, the scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. How many of you saw differently when you finally realized, wow, there's something happening for me? So then he's talking about his time in the churchyard, and we're going to wrap it up. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. 
there had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. Didn't take any more than that. So he says, but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamor. Mostly those within myself. And so it had been ever since how blind I had been. So they're talking to us about acknowledging the power, but then making a decision rather rapidly about whether I'm going to pursue that power or I'm just going to try and block consciousness and exist in this miserable world the best I can. Does that make sense? It's not a threat, it's just his testimony. So it says that at the hospital I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God, as I then understood him to do with me as he would. And I want to have you look at that. It isn't a God of your understanding. It's God as we understood him, and he just told you the profound experience of the Spirit and how his thinking started to change. And the God he then understood was tangible power within that had caused him to swallow hard and caused him to reflect and caused him to understand the reflection of Abby standing before him. Does that make sense? So if we tell people it's the God of your understanding, that's just misleading. I'm not the creator of the creator. I'm the created. I don't need to create the creator. So then it says, I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Notice how he didn't say I've not had a problem since. <laughs> my schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. What's that sound like? I did a third step. I contemplated what it was going to be like, got some idea what it was, and I started doing a four or five whatever with my friend. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. And never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. God consciousness, the awareness of being aware of this power within. Yes? Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was sick quietly when in doubt, only asking for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. And that's where we leave you next week. We'll look at step two. Thank you very much. Close? Hmm? Well, not according to that. I did. Oh, I'm just